Good morning, everybody. Let's be opening our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. It's been a great service so far. I really appreciate the worship team preparing our hearts and uh, just knowing what's going on in our church, uh, knowing that there are all kinds of different meetings of the body, announcements and events to encourage us and build our faith. And what we're about to do uh, over the next three times that we're together here is uh, embark on a series studying out the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, we're calling it The Strength to Love. And uh, as was mentioned earlier, we're not going to be here next Sunday. We'll be out in Secaucus with about 3,000 other worshipers, which is going to be great. Uh, But the week after that will be part two, and then we'll close out on February the 5th with part three and studying different parts of these great books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, As Al mentioned, it's also been a church-wide fast that we have been participating in together, and already this last week, over 50 people had taken a day each to fast, and I want to thank everyone who's participated so far. I know many people have broke fast together, calling and texting each other and eating their meals to break fast together. I don't know how many people did it for breakfast, which is where break fast is sort of the origin and where breakfast comes from. Maybe you did it for dinner, but that's okay. You can call it break dinner. But uh, it's been a unifying time and uh, really encouraging. And I know that whenever the church gets together, And we all get on the same page like this and commit to something like this. I know that something special happens and God's heart is moved. And I know that today uh, six people are fasting. So if you go out to lunch with someone and they say, no, thank you, don't push it. uh, And, you know, maybe it's for that reason. And I know by the end of this week, we'll have another hundred total. And then we have another week after that uh, that will continue to build. You know, we're giving up on food and calling on God to fill us up. And we're calling on him to fill us up with the strength to love like Jesus did. The strength to love. And I want to say at the outset here that I believe it's most people's understanding that we live in what many call divided times. Many want to draw lines in the sand, in our politics, socially, economically, racially, And the list goes on. But we here are God's church. And we are charged by the Bible, by God himself, never to allow the world to dictate the terms of our faith. And that means we do not draw those lines in the walls of the congregation. Amen? The only lines that we draw are the lines that God tells us to draw in his word. And we're going to be talking about that today as we jump into the first session here in the strength to love. You know, our number one weapon against the threat of division is love itself. Never is there, I feel like, in the past six years that I lived in New York, a better time to talk about love than right now. The word love appears 34 times in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 34 times in these very small books. So if you were to average it out, the word love appears every fourth verse as you're reading through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You're going to see it a lot. And the author, John, who authored not only these three books, but also the gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, and also Revelation, is very consistent. In his gospel, he talks about love a lot, almost 39 times in that book. And so today we're going to split it up by focusing on loving the light. Loving the light. 
And if you guys are there in First uh, John chapter 1, we'll start reading in a minute. I've got three points today. They're manifestations of spiritual light, and we're going to be focusing on scriptures from First and Second John. The light of creation, the light of confession, and the light of conviction. Let's start together in First John chapter 1, verse 1. You guys with me? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. All right, let's stop there and break this down a little bit. Uh, John is writing to churches in the area of Asia Minor. And uh, if you want a list of churches that that might have included, just go to the first few chapters in the book of Revelation. And you probably have the same list of churches that he's writing to now. He's probably in Ephesus at the time, somewhere between 85 and 90 or 95 AD. The historians have a little dispute about when it is. But we pinpointed it to about that decade era that he wrote these three books. And the Roman Emperor Domitian is in power at this time and uh, isn't a very nice guy when it comes to Christians. Uh, What's the surprise with Roman emperors during that time, though? But historians say that a worse threat, worse threat than coming from the outside, is a threat that's developing on the inside of the church. There is a divisive branch of brothers and sisters that were in the church and started to go off the core doctrine of Christianity. And here we are, you know, 50 years after Christ has died on the cross and resurrected. And so there's a lot of time for the message to start to become divided and diluted. So one of these branches uh, becomes known as the Gnostic branch, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, from the Gnosis, which is knowledge in the language of Greek. And so we understand that basically from this, these guys are pursuing knowledge. It wasn't so much about a soul search for salvation as it was about an upward climb of intellect and being able to get more secret knowledge and sometimes even paying for that secret knowledge in cash so that they could be elevated in their religion. It was an offshoot of Christianity, still use a lot of the same scriptures to justify their belief, but went awry in some severe ways. One of the things that they argued is that the body, the flesh, is evil. And therefore, anything that the body does is separate from the soul, which is good. So you can imagine where that might take you in your philosophy. Here you are, you're living as a Christian, and then you hear that a branch of so-called Christianity believes that you can do whatever you want with the body because it's not a part of who you are in your soul. So as long as you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you can do whatever you want in the flesh because it's evil anyways. You get where this could be a problem, right? You start justifying all kinds of different sin and immorality and impurities and paganism, and you basically disassociate yourself, disassociate the body from the soul. Some people even argued in this branch that Jesus couldn't possibly have been the perfect Messiah, Son of God, because he came down in a human body. And if the body, the flesh, is evil, that could not have been Jesus' Son, who is perfect and could not be combined in human flesh. Make sense? I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense, right? So this was tearing up the church from the inside out. John is refuting this doctrinal garbage with these three books. He's also doing a lot of other stuff that we're going to get into together. But his main weapon against the false doctrine, against the division, 
is love. And different forms of spiritual love. He starts off, and if you look back in the passage, talking about how he was an eyewitness to Jesus himself. It helps in any burden and proof to be able to say that we have eyewitness accounts. People touched the man. They saw the man. They witnessed what the man did. We have eyewitness accounts of Jesus, Jesus the Christ. And he calls in language that should be very familiar, especially to the Jewish audiences that had converted to Christ at that time. Anyone want to guess where that language is in this verse? Is it at the beginning? What do you think about when you hear the phrase, in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. He spoke light into existence and form where there was no form. And if you Bible scholars remember John chapter 1, his gospel, he also begins that gospel with the same thing. A reference to in the beginning. So there's Genesis 1 in the beginning. There's John 1 in the beginning. And now there's 1 John 1 from the beginning. What's he doing? Well, what he's saying is, well, God was responsible for the creation at the very outset. He brought light into darkness, form where there was formlessness. And then in John 1, he recalls that and says, okay, guess who was there with God at the beginning? Jesus. It always threw me off before I learned what it meant in Genesis 1, I think it's verse 26, where it says, let us create man in our image. It's like, who's us? Like, why is God speaking in the royal we here? Like, is there a pluralistic God? What is he saying? And you, you start reading and you learn God was always three. He was always the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Let us create. Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. And so Jesus is called into that picture in John chapter 1. And if anything, John is trying really hard to help people understand that Jesus is fully divine, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And this is an argument directly against the Gnostic branch that was divided off from Christianity. And then you get to 1 John 1. What's he doing here? Well, he's saying, well, we were with Jesus in the flesh who was with God at the beginning who created everything that we see before us today. Do you see the the fluid argument there? You guys with me? This is debate style right here. So we have these internal threats that John is battling against with this argument about Jesus past, present, and future. He calls us back to Christ. What is the answer to any kind of threat from the outside or inside the church? It is a call back to Christ and his love. Amen? And do you think that it's possible that even today, in 2017, we could have threats both from the outside and the inside of the modern day church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just because we're in the church does not mean that we are indestructible or, or unable to be whether it's afflicted or tempted or seduced by sin in the inside and the out. So just like John, we have to be ready to defend our unity with Scripture. And he went back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to begin that argument. He reminds the church that we worship the Creator God who made everything and that he will not be mocked by selfish, attention-hungry, false teachers who seek to divide his people. In the same way that God spoke light into a dark world, he speaks light into our lives. And he wants to be able to see it all. That everything is laid bare and uncovered to him 
who has the account. You know, John talks a lot about light in the scriptures. Uh, 16 times in the Gospel of John, uh, in verse 5, chapter 1, he talks about a light that shines out of darkness. Chapter 1, verse 8, a witness being John the Baptist to the true light. In 8.12, I am the light of the world, Jesus speaking. In 12.36, for us to become children of the light. And one of my favorites in John chapter 3, in verse 19 and 20, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Have you ever seen a child caught in a lie? Well, let me show you. Something happened here on the wall. Who did that? Jackson, did you do that? Um, no. Nope. Did you do that? No, I did not. I really didn't. Okay, well, when I walked in the room, you looked like you were hiding something. A ghost? No, a ghost definitely did not do that. Well, well, I was trying to hide it from you because I didn't want Jackson to get in trouble. Are you sure about this? Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if I believe you. You ever felt like this? <laughs> you know, I, I feel for the kids. You know, you're in that moment. You're like, it, the layers start peeling off, right? The truth is back there somewhere, and mom is just trying to dig for it, right? Let's, let's look at another example here. Now, what is that right there? What is that? Donut. It's a what? Donut. Were you supposed to get a donut? No, I can still see the donut. I can still see it. Look at me. Now, did I tell you that you could have a donut? No. I didn't, right? So why did you come in here and tell me a story? Because I didn't want to, but I got in my room and someone froze in it and then I eat it and my daddy was mad at me. Daddy's not even here. No, I'm talking about a story. I'm not, no, I mean, did you, are you telling me the truth or a lie? Um, the truth. I'm the, trying the truth. The truth, really? Mm-hmm. Well, Tiffany, what's inside that hat? Move the donut that's on top of the hat. And open up the hat. There's, so you stole a whole donut, huh? <laughs> oh, Lord. Hiding sin is as old as Adam and Eve, Right? They felt ashamed. They knew what they did was wrong. Tried to cover up the donut. And, uh, and here we have it. Uh, this great quote from Dallas Willard. Almost all evil deeds are begun with the thought that they could be hidden by deceit. You know, in, our, in our minds, we think, hey, if we can get away with it, right? And it starts to justify what we do. And this is point number two. Is the light of confession. Point number one, the light of creation. Point number two, the light of confession. You know, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, it reads, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I love this idea that God is light and that it is such an amazing promise that God sent us on Jesus to be a mediator, to be able to take on all the darkness of the world, to be able to be able to intercede so that we can have fellowship with God through the blood of the Son. And we'll be taking communion in a few minutes and be able to just reflect on that power, the power of grace. And uh, I relate not only to those kids, but as the parent talking to kids now that I'm a parent. And, and just that feeling that all you want is your child to be honest with you. And at some level, you're, you're, you're willing to say, look, just be honest. Just tell me the truth. And if you do, if you're honest right now, I tell you, I can't promise there's not going to be a consequence or a punishment. But it's going to be way less if you have to get caught in this. Just come out with it. And I think God just desires for us to just be honest with him. And it's funny with God, he sees it all anyway, right? You know, if you go on YouTube and type in something like that, you know, kids caught in a lie, you'll see all these kids where their faces are covered in in food. And, And it's parent after parent saying, did you eat the cookies? No, no. Did you have the strawberry shortcake? You know, strawberry all over the face. No. No. You know, the parents just see it all. But giving an opportunity for that child to be able to be honest. And you know what's amazing? That forgiveness, that hug, that it's okay, the brokenness of I'm sorry, and then the consequent I love you. That's grace. That grace feels really good. And that grace isn't possible without going through the process of recognizing sin in our lives, acknowledging it, confessing it, and being brave enough to repent of it. And that's the call for today, to love the light so much that we confess. You know, this, uh, it's supposed to be underlined, not crossed out, but it says, if we confess, (laughs) it needs to stay in the Bible. It's from the Greek uh, homologio, and it's really from two words, Hamal, which is together, and Lego, to say. And so the idea is we say together. We admit, we concede, we confess, we humble ourselves, we tell to one another the sins in our hearts, in our lives. And James 5.16 reminds us of the power of confession and praying for one another, that when we do this, uh, there's healing at the other end. That healing comes from God. That's why we pray, God, please heal us for the sins we've committed, but there is a, there's a genuineness, there's a sincerity, there's a love in the fellowship of believers, there's a trust to be able to say together what the sins are, and then to go to God with it, to help each other, to hold each other accountable, to admonish one another, to warn one another, to love and encourage one another, to correct one another, to rebuke one another. There are many scriptures that remind us that this is part of who we are, As a brotherhood here in the church. In a world where lying is as normal as catching a cold, transparency is a powerful cure. Do you think crime happens more at night or more during the day? You can see uh, several studies done 
And of course, there are different kinds of crime that happen at different times of day. But yes, predominantly more crime at night. Why do you think? It's hidden. Harder for a witness to make out a perpetrator. Things are concealed more easily. Uh, The graphs here just take certain cities. And uh, you can see the middle of each graph is the middle of the day. And the ends are nighttime. So huge bumps in crime, especially violent crime. Particular shootings at night. There is a war happening between light and darkness. And the battles, more than in our streets more than in what's happening all around the world, is happening in the struggle of our soul. It's an individual decision on what we are going to do with the time God has allowed us to have on this earth. And there are so many passages, I was overwhelmed in getting ready for this sermon, about passages that just speak loudly to me to remind me of the conviction that I need to have here. I'm going to list a few for you here, run through them. And uh, we'll post this online so you can have them so you don't need to jot them all down so quickly. But Job 24, 13 through 17 says that there are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight's gone, the murderer rises up, kills the poor and needy, and in the night steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. Is midnight your friend? Now, I know we have a lot of night owls in New York, and it's not all bad, but I know that more happens at night that we can conceal, more people are asleep at night, and so what happens is there's this feeling, I don't know about you, but some of us worth the night shift, amen, no, no, no uh, offense uh, intended here, but it's easier to be tempted when things are dark, when people are asleep, when there's less going on, you feel like prowling whether it's prowling on the internet or prowling in the street or prowling from place to place. Is midnight your friend? Do you feel like you're more alive at night? Not to do God's will, but to do the opposite. Are you more tempted at night to go do those things, to get caught up in things that are not going to lead you towards the Lord? In Isaiah 29, 15 through 16, it says, Woe to those who go through great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? There are some sins in some of our hearts right now that have not been revealed, have not been confessed, and God knows. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can hide from God. You remember Jonah? What city? Nineveh. Remember the one you're supposed to preach at? Right? Adam and Eve. What fruit? Right? How about Peter? What rooster? You know, I mean, the list goes on. The Bible is full of people that have been deceived by the same thing. So are we going to be a perfect church? No. But we are going to go after being transparent. Being those who live in the light. Jeremiah 16, 17. My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Job 12, 22. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He will bring into the light of day all that is present and hidden in darkness. He will expose the secret motives of our hearts. Whether we get open now or we get pride open at Judgment Day, openness will happen. It's going to hurt a lot less if we do it now. I hope that's your conviction. Romans 13, 12-13. 
So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. There's specific sins that we start to identify and say, these do not belong in my life. I need to be open about them. I need help to be able to conquer them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8, you are all sons of the light, sons of the day, daughters of the light, daughters of the day. We not to belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 and 6, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You know, I mentioned this uh, at the midweek services this last week, that the older I get in the faith, the harder it is to be open about my sins. I don't know if you can relate to that. I don't know if it's a reputation that I feel like I built up in my life and I don't want to ruin it or I don't want people to think less of me, but it's more challenging. Still doesn't mean that I'm off the hook. Got to be open. And if you look at this church that John is writing to, the churches in Asia Minor, we're talking about 85, 95 AD. We're talking about two or three generations after the first century disciples, those radical revolutionaries that were martyred for their faith. And so it's potential to be numb in the heart and not to feel that same passion is quite possible here for the church. Maybe it became a routine to confess and the heart got numb. We can relate to this. If you're in the church for a long time, you can relate to confession and prayer and Bible study. All it become routine. It become sort of numb. And we lose the reasons why we do what we do. This is a challenge to our hearts. It reminds me of this great quote out of the collection of sermons called Strength to Love from Martin Luther King Jr. It says, on the one hand, we proudly profess certain sublime and noble principles. But on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of these principles. How often are our lives characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds? You know, hypocrisy might be the biggest turnoff to the unchurched, not only in New York, but around the world. I don't know about you, but I went to churches, many different churches growing up, where I saw the people doing what they were doing from Monday through Saturday, and I saw a different person on Sunday. And I didn't see a person on Sunday that was trying or a person on Tuesday or Thursday that was trying or being open about their lives. I saw two totally different things. And I followed suit. And when I came in on Sunday, I felt the cleansing power of the Holy Ghost. Which only gave me more strength to do all the evil deeds I needed to do from Monday through Saturday. And then I knew Saturday night, well, I got church tomorrow to cleanse me again and get me ready for another week. That's just not how it works. The heart is bent on transparency. That there isn't a secret life, a double life. I live one way this way and one way that way. I am not perfect, but I am trying to be perfectly honest. I'm trying to be perfectly open. And this might be some of our salvation. No, all your righteous deeds won't get you to heaven. But if you're open, get the help with the sins that are concealed. Yes, that might help you repent and make it to heaven. It's not a cop-out. It's a call-up. And I think it takes just as much courage to be honest as it does to be righteous. Yes, we fall. 
But we need inspirational examples of people who are fearlessly open. Being humble. Matching the deed to the creed. So here's what I want to do right now. The ushers are going to come forward and hand you something. It's going to be a little piece of paper. And I want to encourage and even challenge all of us here today to write with pen on paper, anonymously, don't put your name on it, a sin that you are being haunted by, a sin that you are wrestling, a sin that you are trying to get out of your life, a sin that you want to burn up, a sin that if anything can be taken from your spiritual life right now and that you can be free from, you could say so long today and be able to be free from it in order to struggle with something else. So take a piece of paper. Consider what this one thing is. Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a phrase. Maybe it's a sentence. Cover your paper. Don't let anyone else see what you're writing. Don't cheat. Don't look on somebody else's. This is your world, your paper, your life, your sin. It's anonymous. No one will know. Write with your left hand if you're really worried about someone figuring it out. For left-handers, you know what I mean. Go with the right. What we're going to do today is symbolically decide to partake in really a sacred and communal thing that happened in our ancestry spiritually. We read about it in Nehemiah on Wednesday and on Thursday. Where they openly confess their sins. Now, we're not going to stand up like they did and start confessing. And, you know, they did more than that. They didn't just confess their sins. They started confessing their ancestors' sins. Yeah. Grandpa Billy Bob cheated. and You know, we're not going to do all that. We're going to take responsibility for our own sins. We're going to write them down. And then the ushers are going to come back during the time of communion. And we're going to toss them back. We're going to put them in a bag. And we're going to say goodbye. We're going to think during our fast, during our study, during our communal decision to get rid of the sin that might be in our camp. We're going to decide not to let fear rule us anymore. The fear of being known. The fear of being judged. The fear of what people might say. And we're going to practice in some small way today what it's like to get something off of our chest. Doesn't it feel good to get something off your chest? And there are people that hold sin in for a lifetime. And it grows inside. It grows like a gangrene, a bitterness that can take over their whole lives. A poison that could eventually kill them. Physically, spiritually. So I'm going to give you a minute to write this down. Fold it in half. Then the ushers will stay in the aisles once the communion is taken. And we'll hand them back with the little packages that we take for communion. Amen? All right, let me close out in point number three. Point number three is the light of conviction. The light of creation. The light of confession. In the light of conviction. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, it says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. And I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. You know, love one another is an old command, as old as Cain and Abel. We hear about love others as you love yourself. Problem is, not everybody loves themselves, right? Other problem is, some people love themselves too much. So this is a new command, a new conviction 
that Jesus teaches and John talks about even in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. He says, I want you to love not like yourself. I want you to love like Jesus. I want to raise the standard. Jesus' love is selfless. We want to love, it's not about us, but about what can I do for you? You know, I want us to, uh, we're talking about the light and being able to see clearly and being open. I want us to cover our eyes just for about five seconds. So everyone just close and cover your eyes if you can. Let's count backwards from five, four, three, two, one, and open. How long did it take for your eyes to readjust? Were you pretty fast? Hopefully it's pretty fast. Okay. All right. For some of us, we, we have... Um, Issues in sight, so it might have been a little bit of a different experience uh, there, and that's okay. But typically, if you're a sighted person, you cover your eyes, and then you open back up, and your eyes adjust pretty quickly. Okay? Now, what about when you first wake up in the morning? How does that feel? Is that a little harder? Yeah? So maybe it takes a little bit longer. All right? Um... It's called, in ocular physiology, it's called adaptation. It's the idea, and you can sort of see, you know, other examples of people opening their eyes, and there's dilation, and the pupils change, and, you know, it's so interesting to see what's happening uh, with our brain and our eyes, and people study this, and basically it takes about five minutes for, uh, to wake up your eyes, okay, if you're in deep slumber. But the opposite is true if you're going into darkness after being in the light, for a very long time. So if you go into a dark room and your eyes need to adjust to that dark room. Anyone want to guess how long that takes? It's a little bit longer than the five minutes. What do you think? Okay, I'm hearing minutes and hours. It's about, it's about half an hour, about 30 minutes. All right, about six times longer than it takes to go from the opposite, all right, from darkness to light. And I think this is a very interesting spiritual analogy. You know, when you get the conviction to live in the light, repentance actually can come pretty quick. Once you acknowledge, hey, this is wrong, I understand why it's wrong, I'm hurting God, I'm hurting others, I'm hurting myself, God gives us this window of opportunity to be able to change. That's pretty encouraging. However, it can be a slow downward spiral once you're in the light and you're going down towards darkness. God can give you all kinds of opportunities to stop that spiral down. But your eyes will adjust to the darkness. And I'm afraid that some of us are so far down that road, 25, 26, 27 minutes, that we're starting to get so comfortable in the darkness that it's becoming second nature to us. We don't have the same sensitivity to sin that we might have before. There's not the alarm, there's not the readiness, there's not the indignation, there's not the godly sorrow. And so we become more comfortable and more numb until we're comfortable in the darkness. And we come to church and we hear messages and we read the Bible, but it just falls off, it falls to the ground. It doesn't go in to the soil of our soul because we become numb. And so this has to be a conviction. I see it in the Bible. And you know what, maybe my heart needs to catch up a little bit because I'm not there. I need to feel that what I'm doing is wrong. I need to know that God is guiding me and I'm not going off what I feel in the moment and my emotional compass, but that the Bible as my moral compass guides me. It needs to be a conviction. In Acts chapter 16, it's this great story. Paul and Silas have been flogged. They've been whipped bad. Their feet are chained up. 
They're in jail. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing and praying. The other prisoners are listening and all of a sudden an earthquake happens. The prison doors fly open. The chains come loose. The jailer who is sleeping and in charge wakes up. And it reads, he woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped on his watch. Better end it now. (coughs) But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. So the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Some of us have been asleep when we were supposed to be on guard been in the darkness of sin and all of us can be susceptible to this and I'm preaching to myself. We've got to be aware of the darkness. God is shaking up our lives. Sometimes he sends an earthquake. We think we got fired because the boss is terrible or we think we got in that accident or bumped into somebody in the train or had that horrible phone call and all these things that think, man, this is terrible. And sometimes we don't often think, man, is this God trying to wake me up? Shaking up our lives. Shaking the chains. And I think the call for us is to do what the jailer did when he realized that God was right there trying to shake us up. He called for lights. He called for them to turn on the lights. To be able to see the situation. And I think that's the challenge for us today. To call on the lights to get the light shined in, to call people who can shine the light in on our lives, to ask, hey, I need help in my parenting. Hey, I need help in my marriage. Hey, I need help being pure. Hey, I don't know how to pray. Hey, my heart is numb. Please help me. We wrote on a little piece of paper and we're going to toss it in a bag. But there's more that's called on us to do. To be able to take that extra step, to go to God in prayer, to confess to him and to ask others to join in with us as well. That's my challenge. For all of us, as we fast, as we pray, as we confess, as we call on God in the beginning of 2017, let this drive the rest of our year and the rest of our lives that I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I can be perfectly honest. Call for lights. For some, it's a call to repent and be baptized. That you visited church, studied the Bible. Hey, let's go for it. It's time. No forgiveness. Know what it's like for that parent to give you that big hug that God is waiting to give you in grace. When you come clean. And remember that in Matthew 5, we're called to be the light of the world. So, what does that mean if the world is dark? Well, that means you better glow in the dark. Because you're going to shine a lot brighter when you're in the darkness. The contrast will be noticeable if that is your conviction. As we go to the Father, In time of communion, let us meditate on these things. Let us decide again to love the light in all the ways that we talked about today, from creation to now. 
in confession and openness and in the conviction in our hearts. And let us throw those sins away. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we ask for forgiveness of the sins that we've committed against you. We've hurt you, we've hurt your son, we've hurt others, we've hurt ourselves. Father, in some small symbolic gesture, we throw these sins back out of our lives and pray that you give us the strength to call for lights in our life, that you would shine your light, that you would help us to be transparent, that we would get the help of those around us who want to help and help us to be able to make it all the way to your ultimate light in heaven. We thank you for Jesus who led the way, who was always open, who never sinned, but even confessed the temptations in his life, even in the most crucial and painful of times. We thank you for his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.